Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the reality of faith in Christ. We thank you, Father, that our cry as believers amidst our feelings and failures is yet not I, but through Christ in me. And Father, we thank you for the blessing of having Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. And Father, no matter how dark life gets, how difficult the path is, we thank you for Christ, the one who has gone before, the one who lives in the power of an endless life, and the one who is soon returning to take us home. As we consider him this morning, as we contemplate the miracle of the incarnation, as we focus our hearts on Jesus, we pray that you would illumine them and warm them that, Father, we would leave here with a deeper love and appreciation for him who loved us. Lord, bless this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to open your Bible to Philippians chapter number 2. Philippians 2, as Johnny said, uh, it's almost a year from we left, um, but it's actually quite ironic that it's pretty much a year to the day from my last sermon here. We, we left here on uh, December 18th, so that's tomorrow. Um, so yes, pretty much a year to the day, and it's a joy for us to be back and to spend some time with you. We wish we could be here longer, um, but unfortunately we can't, um, but we're glad that we have the time this morning. Coming to Philippians 2, I want to speak this morning on the miracle of Christmas, and this is a familiar passage as the Apostle Paul sets out Uh, the mystery of the incarnation. Philippians 2, verse 1, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves." Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." I don't know if there's anybody here is a C.S. Lewis fan or a Chronicles of Narnia fan, but if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, the last book in this series, in that infamous series, is called The Last Battle. The book recounts the epic struggle between good and evil in that mystical land of Narnia, featuring a deceptive ape, a false Aslan, and a decisive battle that holds the destiny of that mystical land in the balance. You see, Narnia faced threats from both foreign invaders and internal betrayers. 
And the king of the land, King Tyrion, alongside the other monarchs and loyal servants, valiantly engaged in a decisive battle to, to try and safeguard Narnia from inevitable peril. And yet, despite their best efforts, the loyal forces find themselves cornered and outnumbered. In a desperate move, they seek refuge in a small stable on top of a hill. That stable was a place with a troubling history. You see, initially, the stable housed an Aslan imposter, but it had now become the home of the terrifying god Tash. Yet forced into this stable for refuge, the group did not meet the grotesque Tash in the darkness of the barn. Instead, just like the infamous wardrobe of the first book, the group are transported into another world as they step into the barn. Unlike most of the other of Narnia's royalty, King Tyrion has never traveled between worlds. And so he gazes back through the door, and he sees the fading fire beside the stable marking Narnia's last evening. Listen to what Lewis writes. Tyrion looked round again and could hardly believe his eyes. There was inside this stable blue sky overhead and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction and his new friends all round him laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling to himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. Now listen to this. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. In our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Here in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul reveals for us what that something was. And he tells us that that something was actually a someone. That someone was God Himself, God incarnate, God in human flesh, Emmanuel, God now dwelling with man. Here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul adds theological color to the familiar nativity scene that we find in the opening chapters of the Gospels. And here he details what made the first Christmas so miraculous. Now here's the thing as we come to Philippians chapter 2, Paul did not write merely as a narrator, telling again the Christmas story, but rather he employed it for a practical purpose. You see, the church at Philippi was rife with selfishness, disunity, disharmony, and others living only for themselves instead of for each other. And so Paul takes the, the famous Christmas story, the, the, the miracle of Christmas, the incarnation, and he uses it to teach the need for humility. In verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, we have a simple exhortation about humility. He sets out in four verses a simple exhortation as he calls the congregation to humility. And then in verses 5 to 11, he moves from a simple exhortation to the supreme example of humility. 
And in verses 5 through 11, Paul highlights three aspects of Christ's character that not only epitomize the meaning of true humility, but emphasize the true miracle of Christmas. Paul highlights three aspects of Christ's character that not only epitomize the meaning of true humility, but emphasize the true miracle of Christmas. Verse 5 opens with those words, let this mind be in you. Paul yet again opens with another imperative where he says, let this mind be in you. He, he goes right to the heart of the issue, which of course is the issue of the heart. He gets to, to people's minds, their attitudes. That little word mind it refers to an attitude that's born from careful thought. And so he's calling the, the Philippian congregation to engage their mind. As he's about to set out Christ and, and his incarnation and his humiliation, he says, I want you to consider and I want you to contemplate Christ and consider what he was and what he became. And ultimately, the result is, and Paul's desire is, let the same thinking dominate you that dominated Jesus. And the message is the same for us. As we think about the Christmas story, we mustn't miss the, 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 the humiliation of Christ and the condescension as He stepped from heaven to earth. And we're to engage our minds as we think about Him. We're to learn from His humility and not only learn it, but live it. And so as we move down, I want you to think about three different things that we find here. In verses 5 through 6, we see, first of all, a declaration of Christ's deity. A declaration of Christ's deity. Look at what he says. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You see, before anchoring us on earth and emphasizing Christ's humanity, Paul first transports us to eternity, reminding us of Christ's deity. You see, Paul wanted those selfishly striving for elevated status in the church to consider who Christ was before he was ever Jesus. There in verse number 5, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So often when we come to the name of Christ, we can easily overlook it. We see sometimes in our Bibles, Christ Jesus. We see Jesus Christ. We see the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Jesus Christ the Lord. What do we do with all those names? Are they just interchangeable? Are they synonymous one with the other? Well, no. If you look a little bit closer, the author intentionally employs a, a word order. He refers to Christ Jesus. Why? Because the story starts with God becoming man. And thus Paul says, Christ Jesus, he opens this section by leading with Christ's heavenly title, the anointed Messiah. And then he refers to Jesus, the human name. But if you look at verse number 11, it's the other way around. As he closes the section, he closes with the man Jesus being divinely exalted. And so he says, Jesus Christ. Now, that's not by accident. That's not the translator. That's the way it is in the original. So Paul begins with Christ Jesus, and he closes with Jesus Christ, and it says the trajectory of the journey. 
You see, folks, we've got to remember that the Christmas story didn't begin in Bethlehem. It began in heaven. Before Jesus was Jesus, He was Christ, the eternal Son of the eternal God. And Paul goes on to speak of this Christ Jesus who being in the form of God. The word being tells us what Christ always was. Being. It's a word that denotes continuous and eternal and an inherent state. We've got to realize, and sometimes we take it for granted, Christ never became God. Never. Christ always was God. He eternally existed in the form of God. That word form refers to the essential nature of something, something that possesses the essence of something. You know, Jesus was not like God. He was God. Before the incarnation from all eternity past, Jesus preexisted as God, one in nature, one in attributes, one in character with the Father. Of course, the rest of the New Testament testifies to that very fact. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, Paul says Christ is what? He's the image of God. In Hebrews 1 and 3, the writer of the Hebrews, speaking of Christ, declares Him to be the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. Even in his humanity in John 14, where Philip said, show us the Father. Essentially, he was saying, show us God. What did Jesus say? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Paul says not only was he in the form of God, but at the end of verse 6, it says that he was equal with God. A phrase equal with God is just a synonymous or parallel term that's meant to run alongside the one who was in the form of God. And what Paul's doing here is he's doubling down uh, his emphasis on Christ's deity. He really wanted these Philippians to understand that the man, Christ Jesus, was God. What he's saying here is not only did Jesus eternally possess the same essence as the Father, but he shared eternal equality with the Father. That word equal is the Greek word isos. Any mathematicians here will be familiar with an isosceles triangle. I had to Google it just to make sure which one it was. But an isosceles triangle is the one with two equal sides. And that's the picture here as he says that he was equal with God. Think of an isosceles triangle, father and son perfectly equal. And even in eternity, Jesus never strove to be equal with the Father. He was equal. Never had to try and climb his way, work his way up from apprentice. He was eternally equal with the Father. And this takes us to the heart of the mystery and the marvel and the miracle of Christmas. And it's this, that the Word who was in the beginning with God was made flesh and dwelt among us. The mystery... And the marvel and the miracle of Christmas is that the Word who was in the beginning with God was made flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, Christmas begins in glory.
Calvin so helpfully applies this when he says, since then the Son of God descended from so great a height, how unreasonable that we who were nothing should be lifted up with pride. We see, first of all, a declaration of Christ's deity. Then in verses 7 and 8, Paul gives us an insight into Christ's incarnation, an insight into Christ's incarnation. Verse 7, well, let's back it up to verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's an insight into Christ's incarnation. Paul moved us from heaven to earth. He now takes us from deity to humanity. Verse number 6, we read that Christ thought it not robbery. A, A better translation would be that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to cling on to. In other words, what Paul is saying is that Christ did not consider His divine equality something to be held on to for His own advantage. Remember, Paul is teaching on preferring others above oneself. The Philippians were grasping for status, and they were holding on to their rights, and they were wanting to climb one above the other. And and so Paul points away to Jesus, and he said, consider him who was in the form of God and had all the blessings and the prerogatives of divine deity, and yet he didn't cling on to them. What a contrast to Satan. Satan sought equality with God that led to his fall. In the garden, remember what Satan tempted Adam with. If you eat this fruit, you'll become like what? Like God. And they took the fruit. Man has always wanted to become like God. And yet here's the man who was God, the second Adam, and possessed all the divine prerogatives. And yet he willingly gave up what he had. MacArthur says, from his exalted position as God, Christ's first downward step was not to regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. As you look at your life and I look at mine, there's something we're holding on to that we're not prepared to let go of in our pride. Here's Jesus who held and who was God himself and had all the eternal blessings, and yet he said, I'm going to let it go for you and me. Is there something we need to let go this morning? In verse number 7, we have this first but. That word but, of course, introduces us to a contrast, and, and it carries the idea, instead of choosing to cling to that, he chose this. That's how you should understand that word. Instead of choosing to cling to this, what goes before, he chose that which comes after. Christ did not consider his divine equality something to be held on to, but instead he chose to make himself of no reputation. Instead he chose to take the form of a servant. Instead he chose to swap a crown for a cross. What a contrast to the self-exalting Philippians. Paul says that 
he made himself of no reputation. That is probably better translated that he emptied himself. Now, of course, we get into controversial waters. There's not really anything to be controversial about. What did he empty himself of? Well, this is the example of ultimate self-humiliation, but he did not empty himself of his divine attributes. He was always God. But he emptied himself of divine appearances. He did not empty himself of divine attributes. And what an incredible thought that the, 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 the baby who was lying in the crib, who was dependent upon Mary for the things of life, is the same one who was upholding all things by the word of his power. In his humanity, he lay in dependence. In his deity, he was upholding the world by himself. He emptied himself not of divine attributes, but of divine appearances. He gave up all the prerogatives of his deity. What did he give up? He gave up his pre-incarnate riches. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake and for my sake He became poor, so that we, through His poverty, might what? Become rich. He gave up His pre-incarnate glory the worship and adoration of angels. When you, you read this passage, go back and read Isaiah chapter 6. The one who is worshipped and whose, whose glory filled heaven and the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. And yet what did he become? Isaiah 53 and 3, despised and rejected of man. He emptied himself of the exercise of independent authority. You see, when he came to earth, he said in John 5 and 30, I can of my own self do nothing. Oh, he emptied himself, and he took upon him the form of a servant. You see that in verse 7, and note how there's the repetition of the word form, and that's deliberate. It's to contrast verse 6, who being in the form of God, and yet he took the form of a servant. It's the same Greek word as in verse number 6, and it refers to the essential nature of something. It's a word that refers to the outer appearance that reflects inward reality. And so Jesus was a servant, not just in appearance, but in actuality. I don't know if you've ever seen that, uh, that the TV show, it's an American one, called Undercover Boss. And you'll get a corporate CEO, and, and he dons on like a, uh, it's like a McDonald's or whatever, and he'll put on a, a worker's uniform, and he'll go and work behind the counter, and he'll see what life is like, but he's still the CEO. And then he takes his, his work clothes off, and he puts on his suit again, and he reveals himself. So he really wasn't a worker. He was just pretending. That's not what Jesus done. In using the word form, he literally became a servant. Not just in appearance, but in actuality. He actually lived like a servant, the sinless Son of God. And yet notice the difference. What's the difference between verses 6 and 7? In verse 6, it says that he was, that he existed in the form of God, being in the form of God. What happens in verse 7? He took the form of a servant. Jesus never took the form of God. He always was God. But he took the form of a servant. What humiliation. What a stoop. 
It's interesting that he became a servant, literally a bond servant or a slave. Fifty percent of the Roman Empire at this time were slaves. And so he didn't come as a king or even an upstanding citizen. He came to identify with 50 percent of the population who were slaves. What was the life of a slave like? Well, a slave owned nothing. What? A slave owned nothing. He became a slave. Jesus, the owner of the universe, and yet he owned nothing. You go through the New Testament and you count how many times Jesus constantly borrowed things. Borrowed a donkey, borrowed a tomb, borrowed a stable. Of course, he confessed himself in Matthew 8 and 20, the foxes of holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. A slave owned nothing. A slave lived dedicated to serving others. Mark 10 and 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. John 13, the washing of the disciples' feet. He took a towel, and instead of having his feet washed, he bowed to wash the feet of others. The King of heaven... A slave forwent his own rights. John 6 and 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What a jarring example for the self-promoting. The highest king of heaven becomes the lowliest servant of man. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And here's the incarnation. And was made in the likeness of man. I think this is an incredible. Just, just pause for a moment and muse on that word made. He who made all things allowed himself to be made. That's an unfathomable thought. Now, when he, Paul says that he was made in the likeness of man, don't misunderstand that. Paul's not saying that he almost became a man. He's not saying that he became a replica of a man. Rather, the meaning of the word likeness is something to be made like something else. And so Jesus, the Son of God, was made a man, not just in appearance, but in experience. He who was fully God became fully man. Now, what kind of man did he come? I want you to talk with me in this because this is a profound point when you think about it. Who is Jesus in his humanity? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he's the second Adam. Remember the first Adam, undone everything, sinned. We need a second Adam to represent us before God. Who is the second Adam? That's Jesus Christ. Yet here's the thing. He became the second Adam, and yet he was so different to Adam. When was the first Adam created? Before the fall. He was created before the fall with a perfect body. A body that became subject to the curses of the fall. Adam was made and never experienced curses until it came. Did Jesus take a pre-fall body? No. Jesus didn't take a pre-fall body that was exempt from the hard realities of life in a fallen world. He could have. 
Jesus could have entered this world with a body like the pre-fall Adam that didn't hunger or thirst or experience life in a fallen world. And yet, what did he do in his grace? He took a post-fall body. Romans 8 and 3, Paul says, God sent his own son in the likeness of what? Sinful flesh. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of what? The same. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Folks, what a blessing this morning to understand when nobody else understands us and what we're going through, that Jesus did not arrive in this world as a fully grown man like Adam, but as a dependent infant, born of a woman, born with a body exactly like ours, not a body like Adam's before he fell. Rather, Jesus took a body, what grace, a body that could tire a body that could hunger, a body that could thirst, a body that could mourn, a body that could feel pain, a body that could face temptation, a body that could be discouraged, a body that could uh, feel anguish. From the very start, Jesus took a body that could feel and face and experience the full realities of life in a fallen world. Do you ever think about that? Oh, he took a body. Yeah, he did. And we, we emphasize his sinlessness as a man, and we absolutely should, but we mustn't minimize the experience of life that Jesus had, that he didn't seal through the 33 years of life. He took a body like you and me. Why? Well, Hebrews 17, 18 gives us, the gives us the answer. Hebrews 2, 17 says, this is why he took a, uh, a post-fall body, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and help those who are being tempted. Because of Hebrews 4 and 15, so that he might be able to sympathize with our weaknesses, being one who in every respect was tempted yet as we are, yet without sin. I don't know what you're facing this morning. It's been a year. And this Christmas might be tough and difficult and nothing to look forward to. But I want you to know that you have a Savior who came and He took a body and He lived life and experienced its hardships like you so that nobody who understands Jesus did, because he walked the way of this world. He knows what it's like to grieve. Adam didn't until he fell. Jesus knows what it's like to hurt. Jesus knows what it's like to be exhausted. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed, because he didn't take a body and experience life up here. In America, they've got a term, he get into the weeds of life. Here's the thing. The difference is he done it without sin. He's so like us, and yet so unlike us. He faced life, but he never failed in life, and that's what makes him the perfect advocate for failures. You a failure this morning? Lift your eyes to Jesus, the one that never failed. Paul says, being found in fashion as a man, 
There's an emphasis again on the humanity of Christ. He repeats the word man again in the very next line. That word being found is a word that indicates someone to be found to be something after inquiry or examination. What Paul is saying is that Jesus proved himself to be fully human, and he faced the full horrors of the cross as a man. That word in fashion, the original is, it reflects back to the word form, but it's deliberately different. It's a different Greek word. And the word, the little phrase in fashion emphasizes specifically outward appearance. Paul is pointing to the fact that Jesus was recognized merely as a man. Few saw Jesus for who he truly was. Few saw verses 5 and 6. And of course, Isaiah prophesied this would be the case in Isaiah 53 and 2. We read that he would have no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty we should desire him. And that prophecy became reality in John 1 and 10 when he was in the world and the world was made by him and yet what? The world knew him not. Being found in fashion as a man, he done what? He humbled himself. That's a, notice how many times in these verses Paul refers to him or himself He humbled himself, the opposite of the Philippians. He humbled himself of his own volition. He wasn't humbled by others, but by himself. Just like the Proverbs say in Proverbs 15 and 33, that before honor is humility. As Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Christ perfectly personified that. And Paul says he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. This is how Jesus humbled himself because the cross was the crescendo and the culmination of a life of obedience. The incarnation was always moving towards the crucifixion. Redemption was the central purpose of it. And the idea here is humbling himself even to the point of the cross is like a soldier, that's the picture, loyal at his post right to the last and dies in office. And yet where a soldier dies and is given honor, Christ was given curse. And here the author of life dies. Oh, how that hymn is so fitting. Tis mystery all the immortal dies. McLeod says, Adam was disobedient unto death. Christ, however, obeyed unto death, and doing so, praise God, he defeated it. Time has well gone I don't know whose idea the interview was. I'm only joking, Johnny. We have a declaration of Christ's deity. We have an insight into Christ's incarnation, but we can't finish there because that's not where the story ends. Because in verses 9 to 11, we're given a glimpse of Christ's glory. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That word wherefore points us and carries the idea, as for God, this is what he did in response. As for God, this is what he done in response to what has gone before, where where man crucified, God glorified, not as a reward, but in response to his son obediently fulfilling his purposes on earth. 
You see, glory is attached and attracted by humility. Don't ever forget that, young people. Don't forget that, that glory is attached to and attracted by humility. Matthew uh, chapter 23 and 12 says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What has God done? He has highly exalted him. That term uh, refers to being hyper-exalted or super-exalted. It refers to the exaltation of heroes. You see, the finale of the incarnation was always going to be exaltation. Isaiah 52 and 13, Isaiah said, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be what? Exalted. The word exalted is interesting. The apostle John uses it throughout his gospel to describe what would happen to Jesus on the cross. In John 3 and 14, he says, as Moses lifted up, that's the same word. The serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus himself said in John 12 and 32, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What's the conclusion? There's an inseparable link between Christ's cross and Christ's exaltation. One led to the other. And what's the principle for you and I this morning? The cross always precedes the crown. Calvary preceded glory. Suffering precedes a crown. Your life has been hard. It's been difficult. It's been so hard going through the trials and the struggles and the difficulties of life. And you're right at the point of wondering, is it worth it all? James 1 and 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. There's a crown coming. Will you remember that? Christ is your pattern. How did God exalt him? Well, Paul tells us by giving him a name which is above every name. I want you to note in your Bible, if you're prone to do this, score out the word a name, because in the original it should be the name. That's important. He wasn't just given a name. He was given the name. Specific. A specific name. Above all, names was given to Jesus. What is that name? It's not revealed to us until verse 11, and it's, it's the name Lord. Acts 2 and 36, Peter preaching says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, who? This Jesus, whom you crucified. There you'll see in verse 11, the order switches of the names. He now leads with Jesus. Who's going to be Lord? Jesus Christ. He's emphasizing his humanity, the man Jesus, the one despised and rejected of man. That same man is declared to be Lord by God himself. It's not Christ who's declared Lord. He always was Lord. But it's this Jesus who took on humanity. And of course, the word Lord is a name of majesty, a name of supremacy, a name of sovereignty, a name of authority. The angels declared Jesus to be Lord at his birth to the shepherds in Luke 2 and 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. But in verses 10 and 11, Paul takes us to the time when the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ is going to be universally recognized and declared. What a blessing that the day is coming when every knee is going to reverence Him. 
of things in heaven, that's angels and saints, and things in the earth, that's citizens and creatures, and things under the earth, that's the dead and the demonic. They're all going to bow before King Jesus. The day is coming when the name of Jesus Christ will no longer be a curse word, but a name to be praised. Oh, folks, remember this morning, the baby in the manger and the man upon the cross is Lord. Everything about the incarnation was designed to bring glory to God the Father. But as the redeemed of the Lord, we don't wait to crown or confess Jesus as Lord. We worship Him as Lord now. Recognizing and living in the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord is a remedy for both self-glory and self-governance. As we wrap this up this morning, oh, what a blessing that Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of the Christian. And don't forget over this season, He's the Lord of Christmas. And how right Queen Lucy was that in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Oh, what a joy to know that something was a someone. It was Jesus Christ the Lord. May He receive the glory and worship from our hearts this Christmas time. And may we consider Him and all that He was and all that He became and all that He soon will be before this world. And may we continue to live humble and holy and faithful lives before Him. Father, we want to thank You for the man, Jesus Christ, the one who came from the realms of glory and yet stooped to become a man, not just a man, but a slave, and died a criminal's death. But we praise you that you have exalted him and given him the name above every name. He has taken the name Lord. We thank you that Jesus Christ is Lord. May we always honor and recognize him as such and live in the reality of that. Oh, bless this congregation over this Christmas time where there's hurts and heartaches. Help us all to see Jesus who took that human form and lived this life as we do so that he might be a merciful and sympathetic high priest. We give thanks for him now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close with a fitting hymn. I think it's Meekness and Majesty. Yep, there we go. I have 67 in the books, meekness and majesty, and then we're finished.